All right, if you'd uh, like to open up your Bibles, uh, we're going to be reading Exodus chapter 3 this morning, which, uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, is on page 46. Page 46 in your Pew Bibles, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we will read the entire chapter this morning. This is the word of our God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Sends the reading of the Lord's word. Uh, Let's pray and ask for his illumination. God of wonders and of grace and of mighty deeds, as we come before your word, you give us humility to hear, to obey, and to respond with faith. May you comfort us, Lord, with the news of the gospel that you have come down for our salvation, that you have sent your son to mediate for us. May you work in our hearts, Lord. May we not leave the same people that we came in as, as we come before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the, one of the threads in the tapestry of, of our culture today uh, is an obsession with identity. Specifically, people uh, are set on self-definition. I get to set the terms for how others know me. And, and this idea is sunk in so deep, right, that something like biology does not define you anymore. You get to decide whether you're going to be a man or a woman or something in between. You get to define yourself. Your identity is something that you create. No longer can someone else tell you who you are. But in reality, this is us playing God. Because you're saying that you are the creator. You create your identity. You are the reason for your existence. And it's just not true. Human beings are completely dependent upon God. We're created by God, which means we get to be defined by God. And it also means that God is the only person, the only being, who gets to define himself. He's the only one who gets to set the terms for how others know him. Because he's the only one who is self-existent, who doesn't need us. We get our identity from God, and he gets his identity from himself. So it makes sense that we only know him as he reveals himself. We can only relate to him as he has taught us to relate. He gets to set the terms for how we know him. And we might try to do it on our own. We might try to conform God to our own image, but it just doesn't work. But the amazing thing is, even though he doesn't need us, even though we offer nothing to him, 
God desires to know us. And he desires us to know him. He doesn't remain aloof and standoffish. But God reveals himself. God opens himself up and says, here I am. This is who I am. He takes the initiative. Right? He goes and calls people. And he seeks them out because he wants them to know him. And he wants them to know who he is. We see this played out in Exodus 3. God seeks out Moses. God initiates. uh, God commissions Moses to go and do something. And that something is to reveal God to all of Israel. And he's so committed He's so committed to this people that he even says, I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to give you my name, my identity. I'm going to give it to you so that you can know me. Sum all this up. Here's what I hope you take away today. God reveals his name to his people for their salvation through his chosen mediator. God reveals his name to his people for their salvation through his mediator. I think we can see this as we look through Exodus 3. We're going to see through this story how how the Lord is revealing himself. Uh, But hopefully you did notice that we skipped a chapter. A few weeks or months or years ago, I don't remember, we did Exodus 1 and then... Some, ex, some years and months before that, uh, I had done Exodus 2 during the candidating trip. So obviously you all remember it perfectly in every word I said, so I don't need to recap. Uh, but just in case, just in case you don't remember, what happened in Exodus 2 was uh, Exodus 1 ended with this, this mandate by Pharaoh that every Hebrew male son has to be killed, has to be thrown into the Nile. And in Exodus 2, a Hebrew male son is born and thrown into the Nile. But instead of it being a means of death, it is his means of salvation, where this child uh, is put into a little ark that's found by the daughter of Pharaoh, who then adopts him. And this child grows up in the household of Pharaoh as though he were the son of, uh, the, the, I guess, nephew? No, grandson of Pharaoh. He's royalty. And here's the Lord, you know, raising this child up to be in the household of Pharaoh. You get these Joseph vibes. Like, here's the Lord positioning someone, and it has to be for Israel's salvation. Because Israel's oppressed and groaning under slavery. But Pharaoh acts before he's ready. Not Pharaoh. Moses acts before he's ready. He takes matters into his own hands, and he slays an Egyptian and hides the body. And then the next day tries to play prince and ruler and adjudicate between two Hebrews who are fighting. And they say, are you going to kill us just like you killed the Egyptian? And Pharaoh, or Moses, in fear, has to run. And he runs to this far-off land of Midian where nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows that he's royalty. Nobody knows that he was the chosen one of God. And he becomes a shepherd. And then we pick up in chapter 3. We don't know how many years later, 
But some long period of time later, Moses is doing his thing, being a shepherd. And he comes to this mountain. And it's not an accident that he comes to this mountain. This mountain of Horeb is called the mountain of God. Uh, This is the same mountain that Israel will then come and receive the Ten Commandments. This is Mount Sinai. And Moses stumbles upon it while shepherding his his father-in-law's sheep. But it's not a coincidence. You don't just stumble on the mountain of God. But he wasn't looking. He wasn't out seeking to find God. He was simply going about his business. But what we see is that the Lord calls Moses. Isn't it interesting, right, how many times in Scripture God calls a shepherd while they're in the midst of shepherding sheep? We see it here. Uh, We'll see it in David. David is off shepherding his father's flocks when Samuel comes and calls David and anoints him as king. And the prophet Amos, he's shepherding his flock when God calls him to be a prophet. And it's not unlike how then Jesus will go to his disciples while they're in the midst of doing their routine everyday thing, fishing, and he'll say, drop your nets. I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's the same mission. Forget the sheep. I have a bigger mission for you to do. But I think there's a point. There's a point to why God loves to call shepherds and fishermen. It's not because they're glorious, amazing professions. It's not because these are the high-powered, high-rollers of the world who get stuff done. These are the lowly. These are the nobodies. These are the bottom rung. But that's who God calls. Those are the people that God wants to accomplish his purposes. And he reveals himself to the lowly. God, in all of his majesty, says to the lowly, here I am. Come to me. And through the people that God chooses to reveal himself, we see God's character. God is not concerned about how amazing you are. Because it's not about you. It's not about how great of a, of a person you are for God to notice you. God hasn't called you because, because you have these amazing gifts that he just could not go without. If God can use a broken, lowly shepherd, he can use you, no matter how lowly you are. Because those are the kinds of people God loves to reveal himself to. So again, it's not about who you are. God reveals himself because of who he is. Because he wants his people to know him. And look down at at verse 11. Moses' response to the Lord's mission. Moses understands, right? He understands that God is calling him to something that he's not equipped. He says in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses says, I'm not equipped to go and rescue an entire people out of slavery. Do you see how well that went the first time? Who am I to do that? And here's the thing. Moses is absolutely right. He's not equipped. 
He can't do this. But that's not the point. Because what is God's response? God said, but I will be with you. It's not about you. It's not about who you are. And if you're enough for the kingdom of God, it's about God and how powerful he is to use the lowly, to call them and equip them for his purposes. But it's not just about who God reveals himself to. It's also how he does it. Look back at verse 2. How does God appear to Moses? He appears as a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, there's a a couple of things that we can draw from this. Because our first question is, okay, so what? But don't lose the fact that this is just a bush. Right? It's not it's not a huge amazing sacred tree that all the pagans thought deities would inhabit. This is a, a desert scrub bush. It's not impressive. It's not cool. It's not amazing. It's ordinary, unassuming, and probably ugly. But God appears in it. God doesn't, this, this humble bush was not beneath God to be a vessel for his revelation of himself. But he's, but even though God is humble, right, to appear in a bush, he's also a fire. He also appears as a flame of fire, as if to say, I will appear in a humble bush, but I, that does not mean that I'm not dangerous, that I am not powerful that I am not supernatural. And so the bush doesn't get consumed because the Lord's presence is both a means of him showing his humble character, but also saying, I have the power to consume, but I can choose not to. I have the power, but I can make this place holy ground. And so when God calls to Moses, he says in verse 5, do not come near Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. It's holy because God's there. And that means that Moses has to be careful. That he can't treat God lightly. That God is humble, but he's also a threat to sinful people. But God does not consume the bush. He does not consume Moses. And why? Because he wants to reveal himself to his people. Despite all the roadblocks, despite all the walls that are standing between God's people and God, God says, I'm going to find a way for my people to know me. I'm going to make a way for them to know me. Instead of remaining far off and distant, God initiates, God approaches Moses, and notice that he calls Moses by name. Names names in Exodus are really important. Names in all scripture are important, but in Exodus, we see when God calls somebody by their name, it's because he knows them. 
no matter how lowly and humble they are. Like the midwives in chapter 1, God knew their names. And here in chapter 3, God knows Moses' name. Even though he's been in exile in a land for who knows how many years where nobody knew who he was. But God sees him. And God knows his name. But Moses doesn't know God. And so, very politely, God introduces himself. Verse uh, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, Three times, God will repeat this, this sentence in Exodus 3. He'll repeat it here. He'll repeat it in verse 15. And then he'll repeat it in verse 16. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Three times God identifies himself as the God of their fathers. And not just their immediate fathers, but their spiritual fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As he reveals himself to Moses, what God is saying is he's revealing himself as as the God who has watched over this family for generations. This is the God who made promises to Abraham and who fulfilled them. This is the God who made promises to Isaac. This is the God who met Jacob face to face and named him Israel. So that everybody who came, who came after was called the children of Israel. So God is saying that he is the God of their past. He's the God who identifies himself with this family. And then in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry, and I know their sufferings. If you look back at the end of chapter 2, this is extremely close to what God says at the end of chapter 2. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the Lord saying, this is my people, and I know them. And because I know them, I want them to know me. I want them to know me as their God. Not just the God of their fathers. Not just the God of of people who died long ago. God calls Israel my people. I have seen the affliction of my people. God, in his revelation of himself, is saying that he identifies with these people. And that because of that, they have a connection to him. They are related to him. And when he sees his people suffering, and when he knows their suffering, what is God driven to do? Verse 8. And I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So if all this was the Lord saying to Moses, here is who I am. I'm revealing myself to you 
so that you can go and say to my people who I am, here's why. It's not for God's gain. It's for his people's gain. He reveals himself for their salvation. Because he sees them and he knows them and he is driven to come down and deliver them and rescue them to act for their good. Not for God's good. Not so that God can gain, but so that his people can gain. So that they might not not only be delivered out of oppression, but then God's going to take them to this land flowing with milk and honey. A place of blessing and abundance. God's not just going to rescue them and say, all right, be free. He's going to rescue them and then put them in a place where they will have everything they need and more. Because that's how much he loves them. Because when he reveals himself, when he hears their cries, God doesn't just go, aw, thoughts and prayers. Hope, hope it gets better. No, God says, I am going to act. If you're in distress, if you are my people, I am going to act for your good. I am going to act for your salvation. Because that's who I am. That's who God is. But Moses, Moses ain't buying it. You can hear the doubt in his question in verse 13. Moses says, well, how about this? What if, what if I do this? Let's just hypothetically say, I go to Israel, you know, yada, 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 I do all of this, and then they, they ask me, well, what's this God's name? What am I supposed to say? Yeah, Lord, God, you know my name, I don't know yours. And I think there's, there's a couple of reasons why, why Moses asked this. The first is because he needs assurances. He, he's not willing to take God's word for it. He says, I need, I need something. You need to give me something that I can take and, and have an assurance that people are going to know for sure who you are. But it's not about Israel. It's about Moses. Moses is saying, I need assurances so that I can know you are who you say you are. But it's also Moses trying to, to exert a measure of control. Here's God saying, I'm going to send you. Here's the mission. I'm the God of Abraham. You know who I am. You've heard the stories. Go and do this. And Moses says, well, yeah, but I need, I need to have some say in this. I need to have some sort of control. Especially because in ancient times, to know the name of a deity was to have power over the deity. If you knew the name of a god, you could use the name to make the god do what you wanted him to do. And so God's in the mythology, guarded their names because if they lost it, if they gave it up, it meant that they were now under the control of someone else. I think Moses is trying to do something like this in a circuitous route. He's trying to say, God, I need, I need to have some control over you. Give me your name. 
And so how do you think God would have responded if he were like us? You don't need my name. Shut up and do what you're told. I'm no, I don't need to give you anything. But instead of doing that, God actually responds. God answers. Imagine if every time you felt hesitancy or doubt or you wanted to control God, imagine if every time you did that, God turned his back on you and didn't respond. How terrible would that be? But somehow, God is gracious enough that he not only answers, but he meets us where we are. In the middle of our hesitancies and our doubts and our fears and our attempts to control him. And he doesn't play our games. But that doesn't stop him from giving himself to us. That doesn't stop him from revealing himself. Because it's not about us. It's about God. So God gives Moses an answer. Verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now I'm not sure what Moses was expecting. Maybe he was expecting Kyle or Bob or Jeremy. But he didn't get a regular name. Right? What God answers with is, is these three cryptic answers. He gives him three different responses. He says, I am who I am. I am and Lord. So which one is it? Right? Which one's God's name? And the answer, of course, is yes. They all are, in a way. God is is answering Moses' question and not answering Moses' question. He's answering the question Moses should have asked. Lord, I'm not enough. How do I do this? And God says, here's what you need to say. And in in Moses' ears, each answer rhymes. It's, I am who I am, I am, and Lord in English. But these three rhyme. It's like the same name, but different aspects. Three different ways that God is talking about his name. And it's not what Moses expects. But Lord will go on to be repeated 6,000 times in the Old Testament. The name Lord, when you see that in Scripture, all capitals, that's not a title. That's a name. That's God's name. And it will become one of the sweetest refrains in Scripture. Over and over and over again, God's people will call upon Lord. And Lord will answer. See, the Lord is setting the terms of the relationship. 
This is how you will know me. Because I'm revealing to you my identity for your salvation. So on the one hand, Moses doesn't get to set the terms. If Moses is saying, I need some sort of control here, the first answer that God gives, I am who I am, it's not a Dr. Seuss rhyme. This is Lord saying to Moses, you don't have control over me. I am who I am. I'm not who you say I am. You don't get to control me. I am who I am. And yet, despite whatever's going on in Moses' heart, the Lord says to Moses, here I am. This is who I am. Now go and say to Israel, right, the second answer. If the first one's to Moses to address Moses' heart, the second one is to Israel. Go and say to Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God is, is explaining that his name, his identity means that he exists. And you're like, oh, wow, that's really profound. Of course God exists. But think about it this way. Imagine if there were ever a time when God didn't exist. Would you trust that God? Would you devote yourself to that God? If there ever was a time he didn't exist? Maybe, right? But you'd probably have a few backups in place. You'd probably have a few cards up your sleeve just in case. Because, yeah, he's pretty good, but just in case he's not everything he's cracked up to be, I'll just have some backups. But what God is saying is my identity means I exist. Always have and I always will. Which means that you can trust him. He's not going to go away. He's not going to stop being himself. Which means that his promises that he makes, he fulfills. The words that he says, he means them. The ways that he interacts with us are the same that he always has. I am has sent me to you. Those are words of power and comfort to Israel. That the one who exists has seen them and knows their sufferings. And then he says, and now here's here's what you will call me. Not just for now, forever. This is in the name that, that Israel called God by. This is the name that we call God by and that we will call him in heaven for eternity. Lord, our God. And then notice what he says following this revelation of his name in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, Lord, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt 
to the land of the Canaanites. God reveals his name for his people's salvation. And he, he puts his identity into the fact that he has made a promise to them. His name means that he has promised to his people and he will do it. That is who he is. That's how he wants his people to know him. As the God who makes promises to them. Who identifies himself in their sufferings. And says, I'm going to pick you up out of them. And deliver you to a better place. That is who God is. And not because Israel deserves it. Not because Israel is worthy. And certainly he doesn't commission Moses because Moses is worthy to carry the name of God. Because who is? But he does it anyways. He, he uses Moses. He commissions him as this mediator. So why? If God has all his power, if God could snap his fingers right, and make all of that happen, why does he say, I'm going to send Moses? I'm going to choose a mediator, a, a shepherd, a broken man who has made terrible mistakes in his past. And I'm going to use him for my glory. Why? I think there's two reasons why God wants to use a mediator. The first, right, is because God is holy. And Israel isn't. God is righteous. And his people aren't. And as much as he wants them to know him, there is a a wall in place for their protection. Because when Israel will come to the mountain of Sinai and look and see the glory of God, God will say, if you touch this mountain, which is holy, you will die. There's risk. And so in order for God to reveal himself, he says, here's how I will protect my people. I will anoint a mediator. Someone who will bridge the gap, who will carry my name to my people, and who my people can use as a mediator to come to me so that they can know me and worship me without fear. And I think the second reason is that God wanted to use a a really bad mediator because then God gets all the glory. Because then it's clear that it's not Moses who's going to go and save Israel. It's God who's going to save Israel. And it just makes it all the more amazing that he does it by Moses. By a man who, who killed in cold blood. And who's been running from his past ever since. That's who the Lord wants to take and use. A shepherd. Someone unassuming someone unnoticed, and use them for the amazing power of his kingdom. All because he wants his people to know him. He wants his people to know how humble God is. That he chooses lowly people. His kingdom is not populated by the the amazing, powerful, super gifted, talented people. 
His people are made holy because of God. Because they belong to him. And he loves to choose ordinary, unassuming, even broken ways, broken means to teach his people that. And this won't be the last time that God will use a mediator to reveal his name to his people for their salvation. He's going to do it again. And the next time he does it, it's not to release a people from bondage to a nation. It's to release his people from bondage to sin and death and misery. The next time God reveals his name, he does it so that his people can be saved from their sins. Which means that Exodus 3 is not the greatest revelation of God's name in Scripture. The greatest revelation of God's name is the cross, where God's Son, Jesus Christ, would give his life for the good of a people who don't love him, who are not worthy, who are not holy. And he'll do it because he is their mediator a better one than Moses ever would be, so that his people might have a way to the Father despite their sin and that that would last forever. We get to see that every week. We get to, to see this played out in front of our eyes Every week when we come to the supper, we get to see God's name being revealed for his people's salvation through ordinary, unassuming means, through a mediator who is born in a manger, and through bread and wine. See, there's nothing special about the elements of the supper. Nothing special about the bread. Nothing special about the wine. What is special is that God is revealing himself through it. That God is saying, this is what my name means. I give myself for my people, for their salvation. I lay my life down so that they might have life. And hopefully, hopefully you've asked yourself, who am I to come to this table? Who am I to eat and drink at God's table in fellowship with him? Who am I to know his name? Who am I that he has called me? But remember, the supper is not about you. The supper is about the power of Christ to call lowly sinners to come and worship him. Now, don't get me wrong. Unrepentant sin and the presence of God don't mix. But it does mean that you, if you confess your sins before the Lord, 
You have a perfect mediator. A means to come to the Father despite everything that's happened this week. Despite all of your sins and failures, you have a way to come boldly to God's table and eat and drink and call upon his name and be blessed by him. It's through Jesus Christ. So come and taste and see that the great I am, that he is good. Let's pray. God, what can we say to describe how amazing you are? How could we face you, Lord, if you were to take take justice out upon us for all of our sins? How could anybody stand? Lord, we are not holy. We are not righteous. But you have called us holy and righteous. You have called us your people. You have placed your name upon our lips to call upon you. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you would give us humble, submissive hearts, that we would not doubt your ability, that we would not hesitate when you call us to obey, that, Lord, we would be quick to listen, that we would be quick to obey you, and that we might worship you and you alone, with no backups and no plan B, to give our lives to you. Lord, we thank you again and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for baptism, for the chance to receive a new member, and for the supper. And we ask that the truths proclaimed in these would be written on our hearts so that we might more and more trust you and not ourselves, we pray. Amen.